That question about imagining a Russian defeat, not just a stalemate, it's being posed cautiously, not in a triumphalist way, but because it could have serious implications for geopolitics. It's been a momentous week, as you heard earlier on Radio National, for Ukrainian forces, successfully regaining large parts of the strategically important Kharkiv region to the northeast. Here was the famed counteroffensive, not in the south, where it had been anticipated. The Russian forces have been outclassed in a stunning way. How is this being received inside Russia? Well, one interesting source, Russian nationalist military bloggers are becoming pretty blunt. Shoigu, the defence minister, and Gerasimov, the chief of general staff, are one step away from an unthinkable achievement, wrote one. The strategic defeat of the Russian Federation armed forces by a deliberately weaker enemy with almost no aviation. Right-wing nationalist groups inside Russia are seething. So what next for Putin? What next for Ukrainians and for their backers like the United States? Is this precisely where deft judgment must prevail? To talk us through the possible next steps, I welcome Thomas E. Graham. He's a distinguished fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and a well-known contributor to US government policy on Russia and the Eastern Bloc. Thank you very much for joining me. You're certainly welcome. Risks and opportunities, that's what I'd really like to quiz you about now. Um, but right. I, and first, what do you think, though, this past week does mean for Putin's leadership? Well, clearly this is a major setback for Putin and, and, and a considerable challenge to him. Uh, you know, the, the Russians have been saying for the past six months uh, that everything has been going according to plan. Uh, in Ukraine with this special military operation. Uh, clearly, that was not the case last week. Uh, I think the Russians are caught on their back heels. Uh, we've seen, as you've already uh, noted, the uh, aggressive reporting by some of the military bloggers uh, claiming that the, you know, the Russians are uh, fighting aggressively enough, that they, they are losing and are urging much more aggressive action uh, against, against Ukraine at this point. Now, I think it's, it's also worth uh, noting that the Kremlin itself has downplayed this. Uh, the media has not reported extensively on this, as you can imagine. So the Russian public itself does not have a tremendous awareness of what has occurred over the past week, as we do uh, here in, in the West. And that's part of uh, the Kremlin's managing the, the situation inside mm -hmm. Russia. You know, that said, it's clear that Putin is going to have to respond in some way. Uh, and that he's going to have to be more aggressive in the way he's approached the conflict in Ukraine up to this point. There have been widespread calls for full mobilisation, about which he's been very reticent. In your judgment, are they growing? Well, the calls for mobilisation are growing, but you know the Kremlin is well aware of what the the risk of a general mobilisation are. You know, this conflict has gone down well with much of the Russian public because, quite frankly, they haven't been uh, engaged in it all that much. Uh, they felt uh, some of the, the brunt of the sanctions. But if you're in, uh, in Moscow, for example, where I was several months ago, uh, life appears to be going on more or less as usual. Uh, the, the, con the conflict in Ukraine is a secondary issue for, for many people. If you have a general mobilization, you begin to draft people uh, you put them on the, the front lines, uh, the deaths mount, uh, and it's not only going to be the deaths of the, uh, the troops that come from the Caucasus or the Russian Far East. It'll hit closer to the, the, the Russian heartland, places like Moscow, St. Petersburg, 
Uh, and then I think you'll find that the support for this conflict is not nearly as great as the polling would indicate to this point. So uh, Putin finds himself in something of a bind. Uh, he doesn't want to call it general mobilization. He wants the population, in a sense, uh, not to be actively engaged in this conflict, but he does have a, to find a way to turn around the momentum on the ground uh, because he's facing uh, uh, this pressure from right-wing forces uh, in uh, in the military and the, and the security services. Yes, I mean, are you did you see any or sense any changes in the elites in their attitudes? I mean, since you've been there, I suppose too, because it's changing pretty fast. I think. Well, it, 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 things change very very rapidly, but you know, the military bloggers uh, are an indication, I think, of where an element of the elite is. They wouldn't be allowed uh, to be. Uh, making these pronouncements if, in fact, they did not have some support somewhere uh, in the security services. So I think it's a, uh, it is an indication of some dissatisfaction uh, within the, the military and the security services. But I think it's important to note that this is not dissatisfaction that says we ought to be cutting a deal and looking for peace. Uh, this is dissatisfaction that says that we have to be much more aggressive. Mm. We have to take off the gloves. Uh, and so... The alternative to Putin at this point uh, is not a negotiated settlement. The alternative to Putin is a much harsher uh, uh, conflict in Ukraine, at least for a considerable period. Yes, it's been quite interesting to see the nature of the discourse. Apparently the soldiers are being defended, and in fact they're even praising the Ukrainians because they say, my goodness, how good, look look how good they are. But not the generals. They're not being defended. They haven't properly informed Putin, which sort of reminds one of how people used to talk about Hitler. Um, but also this so-called backstabbers theory with allusion to Ramzan Kadyrov, the Chechen leader who supplied a lot of the forces. And you remember that was a classic response to German defeat by Germans in World War One, which led pretty directly to a lot of the anti-Semitism and to the rise of the Nazis. Well, no, this is, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, the Russians as, as soldiers, as troops, are, in fact, are, uh, are very good and have been historically. Uh, they suffer from very poor leadership on, on occasion. This seems to be a case where uh, the leaderships are uh, the leadership is failing the actual troops on the ground. Um, it's not only the uh, the military leadership, uh, but more broadly the government that hasn't given the uh, the forces the um, the type of uh, equipment, the type of um, food, quite frankly, and the leadership that they need in order to succeed. Now, all that said, um, you know we would argue in the West that uh, they shouldn't have launched this uh, this conflict in any event. Um, and soldiers are being asked to uh, uh, to fight and die for uh, a, a cause that really doesn't make much sense from the standpoint of Russia's own national interest. Mm. If you were advising President Biden now, um, I wonder what the uh, the complicated advice might be. I saw a marvellous reference to um, Sun Tzu, the Chinese theorist of war, who wrote that you must always build your opponent a golden bridge so that he can find a way to retreat. Is that something that the US and NATO have to now start considering? Well, I think they've been, uh, NATO and the United States have been thinking about this from the very beginning. Um, you know, the, uh, both uh, NATO and the United States made it clear from the beginning that they didn't want Putin to succeed. Now, exactly how they were going to go about doing that uh, was always a, 
uh, a big question, and they have supplied the type of equipment uh, to Ukraine now that has made uh, their fighting force much more effective. But I think, you're, yes, you're absolutely right. They have to begin to think about what the end game uh, might look like uh, and how they can continue to support Ukraine, continue to uh, enable Ukraine to succeed on the battlefield, but not do this in a way that risks uh, undue escalation on the part of the uh, the Kremlin. Well, uh, uh, in the back so, of our so, mind, we are trying to have tactical nuclear weapons. So, well, quite, uh, but also a thoroughly defeated uh, Russia, which I know was unthinkable a little while ago, but it may not be now. That wouldn't be a pretty place, would it? And it might be much more difficult well, to do. Uh, again, we don't know what a thoroughly defeated Russia would look like. Remember, uh, we're talking about uh, the defeat of Russian forces on on a foreign country. We're not talking about the defeat of Russian forces on Russian territory. Mm. Uh, this is quite different. Um, you know, a thorough defeat obviously will lead to, uh, or a defeat in Ukraine will lead to significant political consequences uh, inside Russia. Uh, you know, the first question you have to ask is Putin's own ability to survive something that looks like a uh, defeat in uh, Ukraine. Who would replace him? Uh, what would that uh, uh, the new leader leadership want to do? Uh, but all that said, yes, um, you know the United States and NATO have to think about what a the consequences of a uh, significantly weakened Russian will be not only for uh, sort of peace and stability in Europe, but more broadly uh, around the world. It will have consequences in in Asia, for example, in South Asia, uh, and all of those may not be. Uh, to our advantage over the long term. Uh, We still have to worry about China, um, a big uh, strategic competitor, uh, and there are various various scenarios under which Russia, under a different leadership, can actually be an important element uh, in our strategy for dealing with China going forward. Right. Yes. Uh, uh, I mean, we certainly don't know. And, you know, pe- various people have said, look, we mustn't over uh, extrapolate from things because that can happen in warfare. And suddenly people are imagining into the future in, uh, unwisely. But things could move fast, couldn't they? Um, and I suppose to your knowledge, are people thinking out loud about this in places that matter, both in NATO and the U.S.? You know, people are thinking about this. Um, you know, I uh, would hope they would think more about this. I mean, you know, a lot of the attention has been focused on what's going on day day to day. Uh, and, you know, clearly uh, we do have an interest in ensuring that Russia doesn't succeed in Ukraine. But we need to think long term about what type of Russia uh, we want to deal with over uh, in the years to come. As I said, uh, you know, too weak a Russia uh, has negative consequences for us. Too strong a Russia uh, clearly has negative consequences for us. So finding that golden mean where we have a Russia uh, that is not aggressive towards the West uh, is strong enough to play a role in helping us deal with what is going to be a continuing problem uh, of China's rise um, uh, in, in Asia. Those are big strategic questions uh, that uh, the administration should be focusing greater attention on. Yes, um, much to come. Look, thank you very much indeed for those assessments.
You're certainly welcome. Uh, Thomas E. Graham from the Council on Foreign Relations on um, a story that is developing. I noticed Professor Lawrence Friedman said, prudence requires us, he's a very good commentator from the UK, requires us to assume this war will not be over soon, but nor should it blind us to the possibility that events might move far faster than we assumed, first gradually and then suddenly. So we'll obviously be keeping a very close eye on that. Stream any ABC radio station live and on the go. Discover new podcasts, music and audiobooks, all free on the ABC Listen app.